whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Season 3 of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. So if you're familiar with the hand-finger convention from Philosophy Colloquia, where a hand is a new line of questioning and a finger is a follow-up, I am allowed to use my finger. The other ground rule is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Sure. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm Susanna Siegel. I'm a professor of philosophy at Harvard University, where I've taught for a little over 20 years. And I'm very interested in the philosophy of mind and consciousness and phenomenology in epistemic questions, especially about perception, and in political questions that intersect with the philosophy of mind and perception. And I've also, for the first time, just taught a course in the philosophy of journalism, which was really interesting. That is really interesting. So maybe we will get back to the philosophy of journalism later in the interview. If not, I will try to remember to bring it up. I was going to ask before we start the real questions, whether you have a particular take on Iris Murdoch, who wrote about moral perception way back in the 60s and 70s, and whose work is sort of undergoing a bit of a revival now. Is she someone who has mattered to your own work on the topic? Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, I, I often turn to her when I think about both what I like and don't like about philosophy, but also how temperament influences philosophy. So I, her idea of a personal vision has been very influential in my ideas about the relationship between the spontaneous flow of thought and the kind of standing, I call it an outlook that you bring to all sorts of situations. Well, maybe we'll come back to that too. It seems like it's going to be relevant to some of the questions. At least two of them are Iris Murdoch inspired, one about temperament and one about fear. And I usually start by asking about temperament and end with fear. But for this episode, we're going to shake it up and do things the other way around. So it's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, Murdoch wrote, what is she afraid of? So I'm going to start by asking, what are you afraid of? I am afraid of missing the point. I'm afraid in, in writing, thinking about philosophy, I'm afraid of mistaking the center of gravity of an issue. Um, sometimes that might take the form of getting bogged down in details, especially because I sort of like details. But other times it's just that you could have a misjudgment about what's really most important in a certain area, what's the most important question to be, to be addressing. And, you know, there is an analytic philosophy, this method, I guess, that you were this kind of ethos that you should start with a very small thing. And if you're just disciplined and clear enough, then things will unfold in a productive way. And I think sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And you just kind of don't know in advance whether it will or not. So um, I'm sometimes afraid of, of doing that, starting small and kind of ending small. Do you have examples in your own work where you've, you feel like you got the wrong question or it wasn't the right way to approach a topic and then you you sort of shifted later? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I sort of feel like that happens all the time whenever I, you know, every paper I've ever written, I've rewritten, you know, at least five times, often more. And, you know, the rewritings are not just 
uh, what people call tightening, and they're not just sentence level things. They're they're organizational, and when they're organizational, that means you're kind of rearranging the actual line of inquiry. So an example, I've been interested, and this also connects to Murdoch for I don't know at least for since before I published the Rationality of Perception, which came out in in 2017 and was a book about the relationship between uh, what you perceive and what you antecedently fear or know or want or suspect to be the case. And so since before I published that book, shortly before I started thinking about how it could be better or worse just to kind of pay attention to one thing rather than another, or how could it be in various ways that it could be better or worse for something to occur to you or something not to occur to you, or for something to be salient to you or not to be salient to you. And I was really interested in this because especially coming from epistemology where the the central question has been taken to be like, what should you believe? You know, given the evidence you have, what should you believe? Which just totally leaves off stage. What should your evidence be? What should you be paying attention to? What should you be responding to informing your beliefs? That somehow was kept for some reason off stage of analytic, Anglo-analytic epistemology for, for no good reason. But when we ask, if we try to put it on stage and ask about the kind of epistemic norms of attention, epistemic norms of salience, it's very, very difficult to get from the sort of intuitive sense that, of course, it's wrong for something never to have occurred to you sometimes. It's wrong. I mean, um, there are moral cases of this, like negligence or, you know, the person who never remembers his his partner's favorite kind of jam. You know, there's that. But, uh, you know, but we, we often in, in inquiry praise one another for hitting on a good question and then how you answer the question you know, is a further thing, but just having, you know, thought to ask the question in the first place, um, or having realized that, that, uh, you know, questions relate to one another. So just trying to, for, for me to think through, like, how could you even approach the whole, how could you even approach this topic of the epistemic norms of attention? I've gone around and around about that for, for, for many years with lots of false starts. Sometimes I think that even thematizing salience or attention as something that has epistemic norms attached to it, maybe that's just wrong. That's sort of intractable. Um, because, when it's good to pay attention to something, usually it's not just because you're staring at it. It's because of something else you do with your mind. You know, like, like uh, if I should be paying attention to what's happening behind the walls of that prison that they put out in the countryside so that nobody would see it and ask questions about it. It's not like I would be epistemically better if I stood there and stared at it for a while. You know, I should stare at it and then do another thing like ask about it or wonder about it or um, you know, so so I, I kind of gone back and forth on whether attention itself is a thing that is a locus of being epistemically better or worse. I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very challenging to think about the question, what am I not paying attention to? Because one is not paying attention to it. It's also, I think, really, I think that idea that asking the right questions is very important is generally true, but maybe especially true in philosophy. Often I feel like the huge contributions that philosophers make are framing the question correctly. And at that point, it becomes tractable. At that point, you can see how to how to do the work. I mean, has, has this sort of thinking about attention influenced how you how you teach philosophy? Well, you know, it's influenced what I've taught because part of the way I came to the philosophy of journalism was that I I kept I kept comparing because I enjoy compare I need to I need examples to think. I need concrete examples to think with. I'm just that kind of person. Um, so I, I, I had all these, I, I kept thinking about the analogies between minds and newspapers um, because like a newspaper is structured in a way that some things are more prominent than others. And at a time, your consciousness is also structured that way into foreground and background. And then similarly over time, there's stuff you kind of always go back to. There's stuff that never occurs to you. And, 
I've been interested in the idea that those things can be better or worse along various dimensions. But in the case of newspapers and, and newspaper journalism, it just seemed a lot more tractable to to think through what are the norms of salience in that context. And that's actually how I got into the philosophy of journalism, was thinking about that. So like, you know, it's very instructive to compare different newspapers' coverage of the same thing. And in my course, I often did this with, um, well, I, I took advantage of the fact that there's this movement among you know, what have been kind of historically white newspapers to apologize for their coverage of race relations in the U.S. In the case of the Kansas City Star, they published this amazing six-part series about that December 2020. And they did a lot of research comparing um, the Kansas City Calls coverage, that was a Black newspaper, um, with the Kansas City Star's coverage of the same events. So you can just sort of see in action how these choices of what questions are being pursued and what questions are framing the story in the newspaper, how they, even if you could have two stories that are full of truths and full of verified truths and full of knowledge, you know, one is still incredibly misleading compared to the, to the other one. So I, I, it, it sort of made, it made a lot more sense. It seemed easier, more tractable in looking at kind of basically historical research or journalism as a kind of smaller scale version, first draft of history in, in that context. So that's sort of how I got into it. Well, yeah. One of the things that's great about philosophy, I think, is the possibility of making these kinds of connections, the fact that you could teach a course on the philosophy of journalism in which your work in epistemology would be relevant, which is a, a somewhat feeble segue to my second question. Uh -huh. What do you love or hate most about philosophy? Yeah, well, you make a good po point, Karen, that I hadn't thought of, which is, yes, that, that is definitely something to love about philosophy. And I I told my students in the philosophy of journalism class, most of whom had never taken philosophy, never expected to take it, you know, mostly majors and everything else, everything but philosophy. I thought this is this is real, you know, intellectual freedom. You can, you know, you can go anywhere with your mind in philosophy. We're not afraid, we're not afraid to to ask things that even might seem like silly questions to begin with. But uh, so yeah, that is one thing I, I like about it is that it, it, it admits of, you know, philosophy of X for many X's. Um, but another thing I love about philosophy, and, and if I sounded before like I was kind of, you know, criticizing our Anglo analytic tradition that I grew up in, here I'll tell you something that I, I like about it, which is I, I really love the feeling that I get when I realize that I've been walking around saying or believing something that on reflection, I just have become totally unsure what it even means and what I have meant by it all along. Um, so this sort of very close attention we, we make to precision, the kind of granularity of our thinking can lead to these moments where you're suddenly, you know, something that seemed totally ordinary before it's, it's uh, mysteries become manifest to you. So this actually happened to me the other day when I was thinking about what it means for something to exert pressure on attention, to exert pressure. This is something I'd sentence I'd written, you know, who knows how many times and um, in explaining what it is for something to be salient. And I realized, my God, there are all these things that can mean. I mean, it can mean like the pressure to think about something before you actually think about it. It can mean once you are thinking about something, you should keep thinking about it. And those things totally different. If you think of like William James saying that the mind doesn't stay still, it always flows. The pressure to start thinking about something is like pressure that's moving the flow along, whereas the pressure to keep thinking about something is like rebelling against the flow. You're supposed to keep your attention on something. And then there could be pressures, pre-existing pressures that something should enter your mind, but it never really does enter your mind because other pressures overpower it or something like that. So I'm like, man, I've just been going around saying this salient things exert pressure on attention. And I suddenly realized, what do I even mean by that? There are all these things that can mean. They seem totally different. 
That's really interesting. I mean, both the the idea about pressure and the idea that that a thing you love about philosophy is this kind of patient and meticulous scrutiny. I mean, because that, that's also something that people sometimes criticize or complain about, and, and both in both as a, a kind of at a risk of trivializing and also getting kind of lost in the details, and also that it, it, it can be sort of paralyzing or, or anxiety-inducing. I mean, do, is it a love-hate relationship, or do you feel sort of unambivalently attached to that feature of philosophical practice? You know, what I don't, I don't love the sort of dwelling on things, you know, that sort of can be excruciating. It's just that what I love is that, that, is that it sometimes happens as a result of doing that, that you find yourself realizing, you know, kind of discovering an ambiguity. And to yeah. me, that seems like philosophical progress on a personal level, You're, you know, of course, from by other standards, it's like, how is this progress? You suddenly like, don't even know what you mean. And then from the inside, it's like progress. You have something to celebrate. I don't know what I mean. It sounds absurd. But, um, but it is a step on the way to, to being more exact about things. And it's just a sort of fresh sense of wonder. I mean, like a you know, a painter stares at things and realizes that there's so much more to what they're looking at than they realize when they actually try to paint it. Mind you, I can't paint at all, but I know that this happens. Or you try to describe something in words, you know, what is really happening in the situation and suddenly the richness becomes evident to you. Or, you know, even when you're trying to narrate a dream you had, you realize how much was in it, even though it didn't take very long for it to happen. And yet there was just so much there. So that's a little bit like the analog of those things, except for four words, exert pressure on, exert pressure on attention. Yeah, that's great. That's very Modokian too. I mean, actually, I was also I was reading a, a, a Simone Weil essay where she talks about this idea of sort of moving around inside concepts and realizing that they are cant words or that they don't make sense or that you haven't understood them as a sort of politically significant phenomenon, as, as a way, as sort of thing that we fail to do in our political reflection. That strikes me as, as, as true. Can I say what I hate? Oh, sure. Say what you hate. <laughs> okay. Um, what I hate about philosophy, at least this mode of philosophy, I hate the sort of frame of mind, especially over years that it can put you into, where you're kind of celebrating your oblivion. You're kind of invited to celebrate your oblivion to things that actually happen at specific times and places because you're so focused on universality and generalization. And I just find this is particularly distorting when it comes to moral and political philosophy. It also kind of, you know, chafes against my my kind of need to think with examples, and you could just make up examples, but historical examples are good too. So I, I don't, I, I don't like that, and and I, I get sometimes just like I've had it. I need to read a history book. I need to read some political theory. I need to read some political science. I need to read some other things that are not afraid of engaging with what actually happens. And then I think there's a related thing I hate, which is sometimes just not enough done to kind of defend against the insularity that grows up around that kind of that kind of discourse. I mean, philosophy kind of see, makes its own world in a text, and I like that. But, um, you know, I feel that everything should be written as if you were speaking to a newcomer in philosophy. And if you don't, if you write philosophy, but you don't write it like that, you know, it just becomes a kind of incredibly insidery thing, which I have a big aversion to. Well, speaking of hating philosophy, <laughs> I can ask you question three. If, okay. you, if you weren't a philosopher, what would you do instead? I would be a journalist. I think I would be a journalist because because you get to you get to write stories, but you get to hide behind the guise of nonfiction. And in fact, that's also true in philosophy. You know that it's nobody thinks it's fiction. You're supposed to be discovering the truth. You're supposed to be uncovering what's actually there independently of you. You're answerable to reason. You're answerable to 
how things are in the world. You're answerable to to the facts about things, but you know you are playing this enormously kind of selective role in choosing the topic and choosing the questions and shaping the arc of the narrative in um, being open to or not being open to or remaining oblivious to those distinctions of the sort we were talking about before. So um, I find all those things in, in journalism kind of much less self-consciously and with the added bonuses that first of all, you get an excuse to talk to anybody. You can just call them up and be like, hi, I'm a journalist. And I want to talk to you. I wonder if I can ask you some questions. And I really like that kind of access to all parts of the social world, sort of the opposite of philosophy to the extent that philosophy is often viewed as a, a place of like refuge. You're hiding from the world to talk about these things that you know nobody cares about and you're glad nobody cares about them because it's okay if they don't care about them. You know, that has its kind of charm, but it also has its distance from, you know, the happenings of the world. And I like the world. I like people. I like, I'm a chatty, chatty, friendly person. So I'd be a journalist so I could indulge that, that part of things. I mean, I wonder if there's a common feature too, and that just as there's a, a philosophy of X for many Xs, there's a journalism of X for any X. I mean, you can it, it allows you to be intellectually eclectic and broad. In, it, they both do. They both do. They both do. That's absolutely true. You can sort of be a dilettante, but not have it. Um, nobody would call you that. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I have one question I want to ask about that, which is about about the philosophy of journalism class. So you said there were a lot of non-philosophers in it, students who wouldn't otherwise take a philosophy class. Mm -hmm. How many of them were sort of thinking of journalism as a possible aspirational career? Was that something that, that, that you got to talk to them about? Yeah, I wondered about that. Not very many. Uh -huh. You know, it's Harvard, so there are, you know, they're going to be hedge fund people or lawyers or something. But I, I definitely encourage them. And we actually have, you know, there's great choruses in the creative writing wing of the English department here. Jill Abramson is on the faculty, so she teaches she teaches every semester an investigative journalism class and an introduction to journalism class as a kind of practical thing. I actually took that class. Oh, I took one of those classes when I was on sabbatical. So that was incredibly, incredibly fun and interesting and, and gave me a chance to actually write, you know, in this other way. So that was fun. And I, I told I mean, I, I urged them to, to, to think of doing that partly by showing them, trying to show them how how important it was, you know, how important a profession it is. In democracy or not in democracy, anywhere really, it's it's important to have it's important to have people who are journalists and who can operate as journalists without you know risking their lives every every moment. But let, let's stay outside of philosophy for question four. What is your greatest non-philosophical achievement? Well, I think that I I think I sort of cultivated an ability to talk to anybody in this kind of friendly, cheerful way, even if we'll never see each other again. And now that now, as I was saying before, it's sort of I just consider that a way that I am, um, so that might not seem like an achievement. But I, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that I wasn't always this way, and I think I kind of wanted to be this way. So I guess I'm going to count that as an achievement. But the other thing, which is a sort of silly thing, but but I'll mention it anyway, is that when I was teaching Susan Carey's book, The Origin of Concepts, it occurred to me that I could summarize this book in the form of a poem that was modeled after Goodnight Moon, this children's book. Um, and so I have written a poem called Goodnight Origin of Concepts that may be my greatest non-philosophical achievement. Well, at that point, I have to ask, is, do you have the poem in your possession or, or in your memory so that you could recite it yeah. for us now? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I have to tell you something about her book. Oh, sure. Okay. So it's called The Origin of Concepts, and it's one of the most important books in the history of of the 20th century psychology. And the reason it's so important is because if you think about Kant, Kant's idea that we 
don't just come to the world as a blank slate, but we have a whole bunch of cognitive equipment and particularly conceptual um, setup that preexists our perception and structures it. Susan Carey and Liz Belke are developmental psychologists that proved him right about many of these things. So the book, you know, summarizes and draws conclusions from really like over a thousand experiments, many with babies, that found that there are in fact these kind of innate systems of categorizing the world in terms of agency, in terms of cause, in terms of persisting objects. So whereas Quine, for example, kind of thought that uh, or just assumed really an empirical assumption, unverified, they didn't even try to verify that that the world sort of pops out of existence when you look away um, and that it's just kind of blooming and buzzing until you create some, some scheme, that's just turns out to be wrong. And they show that's wrong. But the experiments, because if you're going to do experiments with babies, you have to make them interesting to babies. So there's all sorts of just extremely charming, engaging um, setups that are just kind of mandated by science. You have to, and, and the poem touches on that. So I thought I should say a few of those things. And Maybe the, maybe this poem might make some people go look at their book, which is an amazing book, and any philosopher of perception should read it. Okay, now I'm going to tell you the poem. Good night, agency. Good night, cause. Good night, objects. Good night, drawers. Good night, duck truck. Good night, socks. Good night to the analog magnitude box. Good night, monkeys. Good night, grapes. Good night to the things occluded by drapes. Good night, spherical rolling ball. Good night, tall, white William James Hall. Good night, modules. Good night, weight. Good night, bootstraps. Good night, fate. Good night, development. Good night, core. Good night, learning. Good night, store of beanbags by the door. Good night, fast mapping. Good night, word. Good night to the experimenter, whispering glurg. Good night, history. Good night, Liz. Good night, sequence of experiences. Good night, quine. Good night, habits. Good night, small white parts of rabbits. Good night, permanence. Good night, sand. Good night to the sight of the human hand. Good night, cognition. Familiarize. I'll use the bucket to cover my eyes. Fabulous. That's that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Is it in print anywhere, or is this this is an exclusive? This is exclusive. This is exclusive for the podcast. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, I'm going to end perversely now with with what I think of as question one. So Iris Murdoch wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophy? And if so, how? Well, you know, I really love that Murdoch quote, because it highlights that similarity that we in a way touched on between philosophy and journalism, where in both cases, you know, the writer is the one asking the questions, setting the agenda, shaping the arc, even though that's happening in the service of discovering something that they're not inventing. Um, so it's this kind of beautiful marriage of truth and selection, where the selection part's kind of played down. At least it's played down maybe more in journalism than in philosophy. But it's like you get to be creative, but you get to not be exposed as you do in fiction. Like in fiction, everybody knows you made this up. You know, this is just all your mind. Um, whereas in nonfiction, you're like, look, I'm just telling you, <laughs> I'm just showing you something that's already there. And, you know, what the creative part consists in is, is just sort of, you know, it's there, but it's somehow occluded or whatever. So I love the, I love this question. I love this quote because it, it kind of, um, it kind of highlights that, but, but okay. So what is my temperament? How does my temperament influence my philosophy? I think one way it does is just that I can't seem to write philosophy without 
having a lot of stories or examples or concrete situations or images or metaphors or things that are kind of vivid and to me anyway, independently kind of interesting. So I'm not like a drama queen in my life. I'm pretty sure anyone who knows me would agree about that. But I do find it really easy to see drama in philosophical dialectic. I feel like, I think I might have a lot of epistemic emotions, like epistemic feelings, like, you know, suspense or curiosity about how things are going to unfold. And so I feel like, I think the way I do philosophy is influenced by that part of my temperament of like, I, you know, kind of, I experience it as dramatic and I try to write it as dramatic because that's how I experience the unfolding of a problem. And then the other way is just that I tend to have a lot of weird examples, um, often made up ones, but not always in my writing of kind of characters who I'd like to meet and hang out with anyway, even if they weren't in a philosophy paper. Do you have an example of an example like that? Well, in the rationality perception, I have this scenario where somebody thinks they might have a rock in their mouth, like they're eating salad and then they're not sure maybe there's a rock in their mouth. And um, so they have to figure out whether there's a rock in their mouth. And, you know, sometimes in philosophy, we have to refer back to examples because they're making a certain point. So in this case, it was, it was, uh, you know, just about um, how you know when to stop a search, you know, like, how do you decide that, okay, probably there isn't a rock in my mouth. And then you sometimes have to refer back to the examples, you need a name for them, which I was like, all right, this is rock mouth, which suddenly sound like a good name for a band or something. (laughs) And I don't know, for me, I'm just like, you know, I remember that stuff. I remember that stuff. I remember the examples. Or there's another one where there's a banana hiding behind a curtain and you have to guess what color it is. And I don't know, some people be like, all right, there's a banana behind a curtain. But for me, I'm like, there's a banana behind the curtain. You know, it's like, what is it like for the banana to be hiding behind the curtain? So I, I don't know, they might sound sort of dumb out of context or even in context. But for me, these things are really alive. Well, it's good. It's, we can update the, what is it like to be a bat to, what is it like to be a banana hiding behind a curtain? It's, yeah. it's a question too rarely asked by by philosophers. <laughs> On that note, I'll say thank you, Susanna, for appearing on the podcast. It's been great. Thanks. Thanks. It's great to talk to you. Susanna Siegel is the Edgar Pierce Professor of Philosophy at Harvard University. She's the author of The Contents of Visual Experience and the Rationality of Perception. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.